Dotnet Rocks episode 756 with guest Bart DeSmet. Recorded live Friday, March 16th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter and now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklin.net. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much and welcome back to Dotnet Rocks. Carl and Richard and uh, Bart Dismet coming up here, Reactive Extension. It's going to be a great show. What's up, yep. man? I am, you know, dealing with crazy weather, actually. Oh, it's beautiful out here on the East Coast. I know it's beautiful for you, but here on the West Coast, where it's normally supposed to be beautiful, it's been freezing cold when it was sunny and almost snowing. It's it's March. I don't know what's going on. It's crazy. Yeah, we got all the pressure here. Apparently. (laughs) Well, let's jump into Better Know Framework, because we have a lot to talk about today. All right. What do you got? Well, um... You know, every once in a while, I run into uh, VB developers. You remember those guys? I heard of them. Yeah. Now, are you talking VBVB or VB.net? I'm talking VB.net. Okay. VB.net developers and, uh, you know, still churning out the corporate stuff and, you know, the business apps and all that stuff, Mm -hmm. but haven't really gotten into Lambdas because Lambda expressions, you know, we VB programmers like, oh, that's C-sharp stuff. Right, right. But Lambdas are supported in VBNet. The problem is that, you know, when people post really cool blog posts about Lambdas, it's usually in C-sharp. Of course. So, um, I'm going to bring you all the way back to an MSDN Magazine article, and it's probably from 08, but because there's no date on it, actually. Mm-hmm. But this is Timothy Eng on Lambda expressions in the Basic Instincts column. If you go to tinyurl.com slash vblambdas, that's L-A-M-B-D-A-S, you will see this article, and this really sort of brings home the power of Lambda expressions and everything that you can do and why why you would want to use them. Mm-hmm. And everything from type inference to callbacks to uh, uh, variable lifting and, and just how to practically use them in everyday applications. Talk about a shortcut to programming, man. This is good stuff. The syntax is a little weird if you're not used to it, but learn it. It's good. It's about time, you know? Yeah, and you know, I just noticed... This article's from September 2007, so this is going way back. This is going back, but you know, the, the thing is, is that there's still a lot of VB programmers out there that don't do it, because, you know, for whatever reason. Just do it. It's worth it. It's You'll worth be happier. It. Save yourself a lot of time. And don't be left behind by those C++ guys, because in C++ 11, even they have lambdas. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Fully endorsed. There you go. Do it. I don't want to hear I don't do lambdas anymore. You'd be happier. Yeah. So who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 751, and that was the one with Mike Deal, where we talked about data quality services. Yeah, great show. And their comment is from Mark. Now, Mark, most of the time I would complain that people need to buy a vowel for last names like this, but you need to give a couple back, because this is a lot of vowels. But I'm going to give it a shot. it? Yeah, something like that. Okay. I gave it a shot. And he says... Uh, Hi, guys. Great topic. Love that you're digging into the BI side of .NET. Data quality is one of the key deliverables in a business intelligence application. 
Mike hit upon a central point in the difficulty with improving data quality. You can code all day long to try and fix the 100 different ways that a country will be abbreviated and still only cover 80% of the problem. It takes business people who know the data with good tools to really address the issue and create rules around it. Another point that Richard started to get into at the beginning of the program was what we can do with DQS metadata. Can it be used to directly impact the source system? I think the answer is yes, but in not such a direct way. Information about how users are using applications can be used to improve those internal line of business apps. In time, one would be able to see where a freeform field could be replaced with a drop-down or that a mandatory field should not be mandatory. A good example of this is any application with a phone number, which is important contact information. Right. But how often do we end up with 111-111-1111 because the number was not known at the time of entry? I would say no data is better than bad data. You're preaching to the choir, my friend. That's right. This type of entry is a legitimate pattern, but total garbage. Rest assured, you could find the top 20 offenders like this by looking at the top most frequently entered. That This is brilliant, actually. I wasn't even thinking this, Mark. You're thinking smarter than me, that we could use DQS to see what's being corrected the most and then see if we can change the app so that we stop having those incorrect entries. It's data mining. Brilliant. And it's basic. Yeah, it's, recurs- yeah. it's feedback into the app based on the data entered. It's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Gold star for Mark. This is where data profiling information does well, coupled with DQS. SSIS has a component that can quickly analyze the data, get them in max values, distinct values, patterns, and so forth. I find this information often surprises the business because they know the sort of data that should be entered, but all of the anomalies surface here. It will be really interesting to see if these components will be integrated in a future release. Love the show. Keep it up. Mark. Nailed it. Dude. Totally earned a mug. Thanks so much. This is really great thinking, and uh, I'm glad you enjoyed the show. Uh, I completely subscribe to what you're saying. I hate fake data being entered. I love the idea of being able to flag a field. As, yes, I know this is mandatory, but I don't have it right now. Hmm. Remind me to fill it in later. Right. So that we don't just leave the data fouled, right, and, and, and inaccurate. Right. So, you know, there's a whole other mechanism there. But mug off to Mark, and if you'd like a mug, you can write a comment on the website at donandrocks.com. Hey, Richard, it's almost time for NDC. Oh, yes, the Norwegian Developers Conference. Yeah, it's coming up here in June, June 6th to 8th, with pre-conference workshops June 4th and 5th. Where do you see the roster? The cost is $2,000 US. Which is 10,900 kroner. And you can see a list of speakers if you go to ndcoslo.com slash speaker. I know you and I will be there. We will be. We'll be recording shows like Mad like we always do. It's one of the best speaker rosters of any conference or anywhere in the world. And it's not a huge show. If you really want to get a chance to sit and chat with a guy like Aral or uh, Dan North, this is your best shot. It's a great show for that. NDCOslo.com. Awesome, awesome, awesome. All right, well, before we introduce Bart, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online, having nearly 200 hardcore developer training courses authored by industry experts and MVPs. They release 8 to 10 new courses every month and offer a free 10-day trial, giving you 200 minutes of access to their vast library of videos. Pluralsight offers a full curriculum on web development with over 20 courses on ASP.NET, 10 courses on jQuery, JavaScript, and HTML5 programming. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. 
And with that, let's introduce Bart. Bart DeSmet is a senior software development engineer on the cloud programmability team at Microsoft, leading the development of reactive extensions, otherwise known as RX, which used to be the symbol for pharmacy. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I had to throw that in there. A little random. Yeah, a little random. And speaking of non sequiturs, and various link related. Actually, that was a sequitur. That was not unrelated. All right. True. And he, he uh, okay, so he's leading the development of reactive extensions and various link related projects. Bart joined Microsoft in 07 out of college, where he was a C Sharp MVP for four years. He's also a popular speaker on various international conferences talking about language related innovations, runtime technologies, and link. His main interests include programming languages, runtimes, functional programming, and all sorts of theoretical foundations. In his spare time, he enjoys hiking, a game of snooker, and brushing up on math, physics, and type system theory. Spare time. Yeah. Snooker. Yeah. Bart, snooker. That's a, that's a billiard game, right? It's a billiard game. Yes, exactly. Yeah, never played it, but I know that there's no pockets. There's only bumpers, isn't that oh, right? Oh no, there are pockets. There are pockets. There are no bumpers actually. It's uh, okay. It's, I'm thinking of some uh, massively else. large table with um, fifteen red balls and then some other colors, and uh, you have to didn't do didn't do my snooker homework. Sorry about yeah. that. The game That's you're talking fine. about, Carl, is called billiards. Is it really? Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, um, Bart. You know, the last time I saw you was in Barcelona. You mm-hmm. were on stage at Speaker Idol at TechEd Europe, and you were a wild card for Speaker Idol. And Speaker Idol is this great TechEd thing that Richard and I started doing at TechEd, where you everybody gets five minutes to do a presentation and impress judges, and then uh, they're they're judged, and you have a you have heats and you have a final, and then there's a winner, and that winner gets a speaker contract at next year's TechEd, and Bart won, mm-hmm. and that that's where we met. Exactly. Yep. And as I recall, won by basically writing code freehand on the fly for five minutes. Yeah. And it worked. Unbelievable. Yep. All right. Well, anyway, that's not why we're here. We're here to talk about Reactive 2.0. Yep, exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, we did, a, we did a show or two on Reactive Extensions, and at least one. And this is where I learned that it's all about um, aggregating event handlers and aggregating events instead of having to have multiple handlers all over the place you just sort of subscribe in one spot is mm-hmm. that is that a sort of a good elevator pitch or do you have a better one yeah uh, well that's actually like sort of having a more functional style of composing events so if you have large volume event streams or you have ui events or you have management events, you name it, and, and you sort of want to filter them, you want to aggregate them, group them by certain keys. In in a link style, you can basically write those queries over event streams as opposed to getting lost in curly braces, semicolons, and subs, if statements, and all of those things. So, so it's all about this this functional composition of, um, of events. And uh, so tell us what was introduced in... RX two O, that mm-hmm. is everybody's really buzzed about. Yeah, so uh, so we did RX two um, actually the beta is out now um, a couple of weeks ago, and so the main things we are doing is alignment with everything in .NET four five. So that includes task of T and the TPL and the whole async await functionality, which is absolutely awesome. So we can talk more about what we are doing in that 
that field. Mm-hmm. Um, we're also introducing support for Windows 8 Metro style apps. So you nice. can actually use Rx in a Metro style managed code application. Um, we also have Rx, by the way, for JavaScript. So you can do equally powerful things in, in JavaScript as well. Um, but so I'm mainly in, in the Rx for .NET um, camp in, in terms of my daily development activities. Um, other things we've been doing, massive performance improvements. So um, we can scale up to millions of messages a second. We can scale out to multiple cores as well. So it supports like parallel distribution of, of events to um, to process them in, in massive volumes. Um, so a lot of, of work went into the performance tuning. Um, of Rx as well. And finally, we're also introducing support for portable libraries. So nice. if people want to build, you know, an Rx-based application and they have some common assets that they want to use across different platforms, including at this point .NET 4.5 desktop and .NET 4.5 for Metro-style apps, um, they only have to build it once and then it will work on all those platforms. And in the future, we hope for Rx to add support for um for Windows Phone as well, for next versions of the phone. Um, there are some technical limitations, why we come to it today, but we've put ourselves on a path so that in the future it will be easy to add it. Um, ultimately, we, we want to go for just a portable library, not having to have different flavors of Rx, depending on where you mm-hmm. want to run it. Well, um, I, I imagine that people are most crazy about the JavaScript support. Mm-hmm. So tell us, uh, you know, is that platform agnostic JavaScript? Oh yes, it, it, it's totally platform agnostic. Uh, so the core of Rx, just as as is the case with the portable library support for .NET, is like agnostic of of you know the specific environment you run it in. Um, and then we have sort of satellites around that, some bridging assemblies or bridging JS files, in, in the case of Rx for JavaScript, that actually allow you to bridge with popular sources of event streams. So if you're talking in the world of .NET, that's UI frameworks, that's system management software, that's those kind of things. If you're talking about the JavaScript specifics, well, you have the portable core, which is platform agnostic, and then you have bridge assemblies for popular frameworks like Node.js, things like jQuery, uh, the HTML DOM, which is also a source of lots of events. and you can imagine many other ones. And in fact, for the JavaScript support, we're actually uh, putting those on GitHub and people can contribute to to build their own bridges. They say, I have this cool framework. It has classic event handlers with like functions and callbacks and all of that stuff. And I want to leverage the power of Rx. Well, then typically it only takes a few lines of code to wrap an existing notion of events into the world of observable sequences. And then you can party on it using Rx. So... But the core of Rx, all the operators like, you know, filtering, aggregation, grouping, selection, merging, all of those things, windowing, um, those are totally platform agnostic. So whatever event stream you throw at them, it, it just works. Now, you said observable sequences. Yep. L- mm-hmm. Let's talk about exactly what you mean there. Okay. So uh, the notion of an observable sequence is really at the heart of, of reactive extension. So... If, if you think about a classic event, let's say, you know, mouse moves or say file system watcher events or mm-hmm. like whatever you can think of. Um, in, in the world of HTML5, it might be the geolocation API saying that your location has changed. The way to think about those events is really a stream of data. Right. Um, 
So it, it's something you can observe, and, and that's what we call an eye observable. Mm. And the way you get the callbacks, the way that you basically write an event handler for those streams of data is by doing a subscribe call. So you say subscribe to the observable sequence, and you give it an observer. And the observer is the thing that gets called back whenever values become available. So that's where, you know, the thing is observable in the sense that, you know, you give it an observer and then you get callbacks um, to that observer um, that tells you that new data is available. And so because it's a sequence, people have actually learned to love sequences quite a while ago, actually. It's, it's always been my favorite topic, which is link, uh, you know, language integrated query. It's really mm-hmm. a nice way of dealing with sequences. It just so happens that, you know, when we introduced Link back in, in .NET 3.5, uh, we built it in a language-agnostic way. The language doesn't care about what kind of sequence it is, uh, but it was sort of bound to or typically used in an enumerable context. So people had I enumerable of T, or they had Link to SQL, or Link to SharePoint, or whatever. Mm. And those things expose enumerable sequences. Sequences right. that you enumerate over using a for each loop to fetch the results. So what we do with, with um, Rx is really take all of that power of link and now put it on event streams. So if you have an observable stream of something like I observable of stock quote coming out of a stock exchange, well, now you can write link expressions on top of that. You can say from quotes in you know the stock stream where the quote equals MSFT, select the price or something like that. And so, so that's basically where the, the notion of observable sequences comes in. It's a sequence, it's observable because it's event-driven, and you can write those, those higher level operators on top of them um, in a link style. So I guess the, the thing that I, I like about that architecture is that you're not, you know, sort of events just sort of happen on some, mostly on other threads, and, you know, mm-hmm. whatever thread they happen on, they're not within the context of your logic, usually. And so you always end up having to write, you know, the flags or pass objects around that shouldn't be there. And, uh, you know, where, whereas it's very nice to just be able to write where your logic is, say, what has happened, you mm-hmm. know, and, and make a query instead of having to, uh, having to reach out around all those event handlers and, and aggregate oh, yeah. yourself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Your logic in an imperative setting with classic event handlers typically, ends up being very imperative, very distributed, because all those event handlers have yeah. fields that have common state, and you have to synchronize that stuff and all yeah. of that. And in, in our exits, really, like, you write a query over one event stream, two event streams, and number of event streams doesn't matter. It's all in that same link expression. So you're sort of gluing together all those event streams in a very compositional way, as opposed to... As soon as you, you double click on a button and you are in an event handler, you're sort of in, in the la la land of statements, right? That's, right. that's how I sort of sketch it. And if you want to filter it, well, you put in a statement. And if you, if you want to project it to something else, well, you just write a function that translates the input to some, some other kind of output. Mm. But then what do you do if you want to delay events for five seconds? Well, now I have to have a queue somewhere and a background thread that drains the queue five seconds later. Like, right. oh my God, like, your brain starts to explode as soon as you want to do something like that. Right. And with Rx, you simply say, I have a stream. I do dot delay five seconds on it. And now I have a stream that's delayed five seconds. So, so it's really like dotting into all those operators to compose those things together. It's, it's what the power of Rx really gives you. It really changes the way you think about 
programming. I mean, any kind of event handling programming. It just exactly. turns it on its ear, doesn't it? Yes, yeah. And that's that's what we hear a lot from people that are using RX internally and externally. It's like, you know, oh boy, the first time I used this, like, it's so hard to, to wrap my head around the notion of this compositionality. And, but then you think about it like, I've done that same thing for link to objects. I've done that same thing for database queries. Like, why can't I do it on event streams? Mm-hmm. And then once you're above that realization of like, oh, it's just an I observable of T, and now I can do a dot whatever operator on it, and I get a new I observable of T or I observable of something else. It doesn't matter really. Like, I can just dot those things together and be very, very productive doing so. And once people are in there, it's a little bit like, like some kind of drug, they say, like, I can't leave anymore. I do everything using Rx now. So <laughs> it's something, it has an initial sort of bump in the road. And then once you're, you're on top of that mountain, you sort of look to the lenses of like this functional composition. And, and I, I've seen a lot of people today. I had a meeting where, where people said, well, I don't know how I would, would have written this code without Rx. Like, yeah. you know, like the, the staggering amount of resource handling that I have to do with timers here and timers there and queues and stuff like right. it just grows out of hand quickly. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at Telerik. So you know all about the power of ASP.NET MVC, but you might be in need of some good tools to enhance your productivity. Well, our friends at Telerik just shipped the latest release of the Telerik extensions for ASP.NET MVC, 18 jQuery-based native MVC extensions. Now you can enhance productivity by remaining in control of your views without having to write all HTML, CSS, and JavaScript by hand. Did I mention that the Telerik MVC extensions are also free and open source? Plus, now you can check all MVC online demos in both ASPX and Razor views since the extensions offer full support for ASP.NET MVC 3 and the Razor view engine. Download your free copy today at Telerik.com slash free MVC. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. You know, on the JavaScript side of things, and you know, you were talking about the scenario of moving a mouse across a bunch of different objects. Mm-hmm. And having to capture all the events, I'm I'm wondering what the relationship is between reactive extensions and things like event bubbling, where I can mm-hmm. build a common handler, you know, in the parent of a of a DOM object, and then be able to capture all the events off of that. Yeah. yeah. So so you're talking about like having multiple objects that that have typically individual event handlers, and you want to sort of just handle it in one go, right? Right. Yeah. Which I clearly reactive extensions can do, but I imagine event bubbling would do this too. Yeah, exactly. Like, like typically you end up having multiple observable sequences. You can even have like an innumerable of observable sequences, right? Where you say like, I have a whole sequence of event streams and then I want to merge them together. Well, what traditionally has been imperative style coding, like, you know, bubbling events up and like listening in different places. Now becomes something as easy as merge in a lot of cases. Right. You say, I have a lot of those event streams. I want to merge them together. Just give me one object that represents listening to all of those guys. And if I dispose the subscription to get rid of that listener, we, we clean up all, all the mess that we left around in order to capture all those events. Like we can propagate the resource disposal as well. So to get like this, this composition, not only for the event streams, but also for the event handlers to be able to get rid of them. And, 
And doing that traditionally manually is is, is pretty hard, actually. Hmm. Well, and and I would also point out event bubbling is really confined to this whole DOM model thing. But yes. it's yep. when you were talking about reactive extensions, right away I thought of event bubbling, but I think that's a fairly unique case. This seems like a much broader solution. Oh, yeah. To me, it gets really exciting when we start talking about the manipulation of massive data streams. UI is one thing, but big data streams is oh, yeah. another. And you know, and now you throw in uh, async and await on top of that, and you know, programming problems that would have taken you know days and days and days to to solve just become a matter of. Yeah, it's just it's just a matter of knowing the toolbox, right? Like it's where people typically had blueprints of like how to do this kind of event processing by hand. Now it's like just recognize the pattern and know that in Rx you have an operator that does it. Um, like, you know, the input comes too fast, I want to throttle it down. Like, traditionally people have written primers and stuff, and, and now it's just, you have the events and you do the throttle on it. Um, so, so it's really like having that whole toolbox sitting there, and sort of once you get your way around all of the operators that are available, it's just a matter of gluing them together, and, and that's, uh, that's where it becomes addictive, and like, in a lot of cases, people ask me, "What's well, like you've now shown me this this particular sample of RX, and people want to know, like, you know, why is it so unique, or why is it so so cool to do it this way? Like, show me the original code that you would have to write." And a lot of cases, I don't even know how to write that thing by hand. Yeah, right. And it's often also because of the fact that the underlying event model is so different. Like. Like when I first saw the WebSockets API, for example, I recognized an eye observable in it. Like it has on next, it has some error handling mechanism, like you know, it has all the ingredients that make it observable. And as soon as I saw that and I wrapped it in an eye observable, I could do things like throttling or buffering the, the WebSocket messages coming in in groups of five and all of those things. Like right. I could write to it just declaratively. And then people looked at the sample and, and they asked like, can't I do that by hand? And I said, I guess you could, but I don't even know don't where know to how, start yeah. because, like, it, it's yet another event model that that's something I haven't learned, and it's it's the same thing as with link, right? Like, I know link, I don't know XPath and XQuery, so like, right. I don't know how to do XML queries by hand, like, but I know how to do link to XML, right? Or I don't know T-SQL, but I know how to do link, so it, it's that same thing now on the level of event streams and. No matter what the inputs are, um, you can use Rx on top of it with a little bit of gluing on, on the edges. So getting back to the async uh, keyword, the await keyword, I imagine you can await an iObservable sequence, can't you? Exactly, yes. So that's that's one of the things we added in, in RxP2 is the ability to await an observable sequence, which means because an observable sequence is, is a multi-value stream, that comes asynchronously, like an event handler is asynchronous by its very definition. You give right. it a handler and it gets called in the future. Um, the main difference with async and await on a task of T is mm-hmm. that a task of T only fires once, right? Like it says, I'm done, and here's the value, which yeah. is optional. In case you have task of T, it gives you a T or an exception. Otherwise, it just gives you void, right? Like, you know, classic task doesn't have, have a T on it. But there's only one terminal message in, in the task of T. With an event stream, well, it could be one value, it could be zero values, it could be a hundred values, it could be an infinite number mm. of values even. So what are you awaiting is the question, right? Like, are you awaiting the first value, the last value, all the values? Mm. And, and the answer to that is like with await support, 
for iObserver of t, we're awaiting the last value in the stream, the value that happens right before the stream terminates. Right. Um, and using that, you can do a lot of things because we have things that take a stream of m values and turn them into single value stream. Things like oh. sum or average or aggregate, like all the aggregation operators condense a stream that's you know, spread out in time, it could take a whole day to compute the sum of all the stock votes, right? Of that day, like, you know, the total value of, of the stock exchange would they take from 9 to 4 or whatever the mm. opening hours are of a stock exchange. Mm. But you can take that event stream, do dot sum on it, and then await that. And at the end of the day, the rest of your code will execute saying, today the stock closed at that <laughs> total value. Like, so that's what you're doing in that case. It's like you're awaiting that's the last awesome. value of a sum, and a sum <laughs> is just a single value. So. That is awesome. I mean, now, I mean, think about it. That takes pr- the programming problem from one of scheduling and, and you know, CPU-intensive uh, number crunching to a single line that's just happening in the background. It's just waiting. Exactly, yep. A single line of code. yep. Mm-hmm. That's insanely cool. It only consumes resources when it needs to. That's if right. I was going to do this from a database perspective off a stream like that, I've got to keep requerying routinely. That's right. And I'm looking through old data over and over and over again. And you're concerned you might miss something or get something wrong, and now you're, you know, breaks down halfway through the day, and man, that just mm-hmm. is amazing. Yeah, and you can even parallelize that workload. So the sum is, is commutative, associative, all the things you like, right? Like, you know, you can split it up arbitrarily um, in chunks. So with Rx, you can also do parallelism. You can say, I have a, a huge volume stream here of, of values coming in, and I want to sum them up. But, like, you know, all all the time is spent on a single thread doing that plus thing, right? And it sort of keeps back pressure on the stream, and the stream can't advance quickly enough. Like, I want to parallelize that over 64 cores, say. Um, you can do that in Rx as well. You can basically group it into, you know, individual chunks, um, which could be time-based or count-based or anything like that or a round-robin fashion, and then have, like, separate schedulers for all the chunks that independently do sums. And so you're really doing a MapReduce-style query, in that case, over huge volume stream. You're mapping it into different groups, each of them which is doing their aggregate, in this case a sum, and then at the end of the day, you have 64 partial results coming out, right? Like 64 partial sums for each of the individual groups. And then you can say sum those 16 or 64 sums together, and I have the grand total. So um, even doing that parallelism kind of thing is easy to wire up in Rx as well. And if you want to do that manually with event handlers, oh boy, like, you know, like you, you have to have 64 queues, basically yeah. concurrent queues, 64 threads, and then maybe take a lock when a message comes in that you're not, you know, making the queue go bad or whatever. And, like, it it just gets out of hand very quickly. So here's my question. You know, with this kind of power comes the ability to mess yourself up big time. I mean, you you basically are now chewing off bigger problems than you were before because, you know, you have so much more power. Where Where do you hit a wall in, you know, what are the typical pitfalls that people fall into when they start getting into this type of, you know, declarative programming with, with reactive extensions? Mm-hmm. Well, to me, the most important thing um, for people to realize is it's important to know the individual operators and constituents of a query that you're chaining together. Like, you need to know what 
the behavior is of the individual building blocks. Um, and so as soon as you know that, like the composition is, is very harmless. Um, like, you know, if you know how to do a filtering and a projection, you just stitch it together and, and it works. The places where you have to be careful is when you start controlling parallelism explicitly yourself, when you yeah. deal with our scheduler infrastructure. And the nice thing about that is for typical Rx queries, um, you don't really need to know about those schedulers. The only place where they really come up is when do people do UI programming. So, for example, you have an observable stream that's happening on the thread pool. And then you want to subscribe to that thing and update the UI every time a message comes in. Well, that's a bad thing to do because, well, you can't update the UI threads from, from the thread pool or something. Yeah. So, where you use schedulers in that case is you simply do something. I have an event stream, access, let mm-hmm. me call it like that. And I want to observe it on the UI. So what you write is access.observe on, and then you pass in the dispatcher or the Windows Forms control or whatever you have, mm-hmm. and then you do subscribe on that. So no more this.invoke or dispatcher begin invoke or right. synchronization context.post or whatever. Like you don't have to know that. You just glue in the synchronization code as, as an operator. Oh, so that's why you see schedulers coming in, um, in, in some cases. But, if you go beyond that, well, you're still in the world of parallel execution and you have to be a, a little bit careful. Right. Now, that said, my observable sequences are strictly sequentialized. So it means that two messages on an observable sequence cannot happen in parallel. They're always like sequential um, and serialized. So by themselves, observable streams don't have, you know, huge burdens of synchronization around them. They just happen somewhere and every message happens like non-overlapped relative to other messages. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you start doing scheduling and you have introduced explicitly some parallelism, well, you have to know that those things run independently of each other. You brought up the S word here, schedulers and scheduling. And yep. uh, this is a concept in Rx that we, we haven't really dived into yet. So let's let's back up a little bit and tell everybody what that's all about. Sure. Um so the way to think about Rx is you have those observable sequences, right? That just happen somewhere. They produce messages and you can react to them. And typically you write queries on top of them, like filtering and projection and all of those things. Um, now, you also have ways to introduce sequences into Rx um, that don't come from like event handlers. So say at some point you, you want to have a timer. You just want to have observable dot timer of one second uh, periods or something. Mm-hmm. So you will have a recurring time that, that fires every second. Well, very rightfully so, people might come to me and ask me like, hey, this observable dot timer, where does it produce the messages? Where does it notify me that a tick is happening? It can't do it on the current thread, right? Because then it's blocked for one second, it wakes up and it does something and it blocks again for one second. Mm-hmm. Like, there needs to be a timer somewhere. And then I could come to them and say, well, it's using a system.threading.timer. But then somebody else wants to use a dispatcher timer in WPF or Silverlight. Or somebody else wants to use yet another timer facility, like task.delay in the TPL is a kind of timer. Yeah. Like, people there want to have a different way of doing it. And so, in RX, we said, well, let's not tie ourselves to one concurrency model. Um, let's actually abstract over that. And that's what our schedulers are. Schedulers are basically the abstraction over anything that can happen in the background. And 
the way to think about it, the contract of ICE scheduler, which is an interface, is really something, and I'm simplifying it a little, like give me an action and I will run it somewhere in the background. So you can have concrete implementations over that, like Threadpool. Threadpool will do threadpool.qUserWorkItem of the action. Taskpool will do task.factory.startU of the action. The new thread scheduler would do new thread passing in the thread start delegate and then do dot start on it. Or the WPF one would do dispatcher.begin invoke. Like it's the interface that abstracts over all those ways you can do work in the background. And so that's what an ice scheduler is. It's, it's nothing more than a way of giving it work, optionally passing in the time it has to happen on. Like I want to do this work in five seconds from now, or I want to do this work Christmas next year, something like that. So we have overloads for time. But you give it work and it happens somewhere in the future. So that's yeah. what our schedulers are. And All right, hold that thought for just one minute, because uh, Richard, you know what time it is? Must be that happy time again. Yeah, it's time to give away a Telerik Ultimate Collection. Uh, Jeff Hofstetler from Gastonia, North Carolina is today's winner. Congratulations. Clap for Jeff. Congratulations, Jeff. If you don't know what we're talking about, we give away stuff on every show. Well, most every show. And uh, today we're giving away a $2,000 value from Telerik, the Telerik Ultimate Collection, all their stuff. It's actually $7,000 worth of stuff. And uh, every year we're going to be giving away five grand worth of technology to one lucky winner. And all you really got to do is go to .netrocks.com, click on the Get Free Stuff graphic, and sign up. It's free and it's easy. And you could win. You could win. Well, um, okay. So the scheduler is, is the sort of your abstraction over things that happen in the background. And mm -hmm. and now I imagine you can iterate through that scheduler. How does your scheduler interface with your iObservable sequence? Uh-huh. Yeah, very good question. So um, the place where you see the iSchedulers coming up is, Everything in Rx that has to introduce concurrency for one reason or another takes in an optional scheduler. Okay. So, for example, if you do observable.timer, if you don't give us a scheduler, we'll use a meaningful default, which happens to be the thread pool. Um, but if you want to parameterize that, you want to say, hey, I want this timer to fire in the UI thread, you could say observable.timer time spent from seconds one, comma, and then pass in the scheduler on which that timer has to fire which could be something like the Windows Farms Control Schedule or the WPF Dispatcher Schedule ah. or whatever. And so that's where the parameterization comes in. I see. Um, and it also comes in for operators like delay or throttle, where you say, I have an event stream and I want to delay it five seconds. Well, we have to run a timer somewhere. And yeah. we choose a meaningful default, but you can optionally parameterize that. I get and it. And so then the observer is being called in the background on that particular scheduler. So... It controls where things are happening in the system. So it doesn't matter what kind of timer or any kind of dispatcher you want to use. You guys support it. Exactly. Rx is completely agnostic of the concrete implementations of our schedulers. Um, now, how's that working in JavaScript? Mm -hmm. So in JavaScript, the number of schedulers is, well, I should say relatively low. <laughs> um, and that's, that's an understatement. Um, yeah. <laughs> so we have two trivial schedulers. One scheduler is called immediate. The immediate scheduler just executes things right away and does it in a blocking fashion. So that's sort of the base case. And you don't want to use that typically for long-running computations or for event streams that have multiple values. So immediate is really a border case. 
And we also have current threads, and let's not talk too much about that, but that allows to do asynchrony on a single thread in sort of an event loop kind of fashion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and we have those in .NET and in, in, and in JavaScript. And then in .NET, we have a lot of, you know, background schedulers, Threadpool, Taskpool, WPF, Silverlight, WinRT, like a lot of those guys. In JavaScript, you just have one, which is the one that uses the timer facility that's, that's right. in JavaScript. And so that set timeouts, you know, give it, you know, the, the delay and then it executes some piece of work. Um, so that's by far the most default scheduler you have in JavaScript and actually also the, the only one that's, that's commonly present. Um, now looking forward, you can imagine other things coming online, like as soon as there are things like web workers, you might encapsulate that as a scheduler. Um, so, so whatever comes there and looks like something that given a function runs the function somewhere else, you can just wrap it as an nice scheduler. Um, and Rx continues working. So it's just you've gained some additional control over where things are happening in the system. So obviously you've tied uh, version 2 to the .NET Framework 4.5, so you're in line with Studio 11 and all those things. So is this going to ship with Studio when it ships? Um, we're actually an out-of-band release, so you can get us on NuGet and the download center as a separate SDK. Um, so if you look at the framework, and uh, .NET Framework is really sort of getting compartmentized into a lot of components. And things like Entity Framework, for example, are downloaded separately through NuGet mm-hmm. as well, like to sort of have a more frequent shipping schedule. But um, in terms of the schedule, um, we're actually planning on having RxP2 available very close to the .NET 4.5 release, um, and very close meaning at most a couple of weeks um, later. But um, yeah, and the point being, you you use RxV2 with 4.5. It's not really available for older versions. It will be available for other versions as well. Um, we're okay. still thinking about the final set of APIs or the the final set of platforms. Um, excuse me, um, on which we will actually support it. But it will definitely be there for .NET 4.5, .NET 4.5 Metro. It will also be there for Silverlight 5 and Windows Phone 7.1 and the last mm-hmm. version of Windows Phone. Um, we might actually also have a backport for uh, .NET 4.0 and maybe .NET 4, uh, 3.5 SP1 um, as we have today. But uh, most likely it will be 4.0 and higher um, as the supported platforms. That's fair. I mean, 4.0 is mm-hmm. not that frightening. There's no reason not to go there. Mm-hmm. I'm just sort of banging around in my head the possibilities of parallel execution here because I, I know the stream is essentially serial and you're getting them in order, but if yep. there's no dependency between these things, each one of these events as they pop off could be spun off on its own thread to execute. Exactly. And and so we have an operator that does that called observe on, mm-hmm. which again, no surprise, takes in a nice scheduler to tell where to execute the work associated with, with the value coming in. And so if you do, if you have a stream, right, say access, which fires stock quotes or whatever, and, and you say like observe on new thread scheduler, that means that when messages come in, there will be a new thread doing the work for the messages. So you're basically taking the incoming messages to a separate thread where they get executed. It's just one thread for all the messages in that case. Right. Now how do you parallelize? Well, to parallelize, you do something like I have my stream of values. And now I want to group them into separate substreams. Right. So for stock mm-hmm. quotes, you could say stream.group by symbol. And now you get a stream of streams. 
Yeah. When you listen to that thing, it tells you, oh, there's a new inner stream for MSFT, one for Apple, one for Intel Corporation, one for Oracle, for IBM, blah, 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 hmm. all of those things. So you get inner streams that by themselves just have the values for that particular stock symbol. It's just like in link to objects, you would have two nested for each loops, right? Like for mm-hmm. each group in group Y and then for each value in the group. In this case, you have two substreams that you can subscribe to. And so what you do then is, now that I have a stream of streams, if you take all of the inner streams and you observe them on a separate thread, now you have a thread per stock symbol that's doing the processing for that stock symbol. Nice. And so that's the way you can do parallelism. It's like you partition the stream into multiple chunks, and we have different strategies of doing that. Like group by, you could window the streams, like say, I want to chunk up the stream in windows of one hour, meaning I get a new substream every hour that contains the values for that one hour worth of, of streams. Right. Um, you chunk it up, and then you, you basically give it to a different scheduler to do the work in the background. Um, and so that's how you gain parallelism in, in the world of Rx, which already is an advanced scenario, but it's very easy to do. It's, it's just two lines of code to get to that. Like, you know, mm-hmm. group it and observe it on, on a different... And track. if I have a... I'm going to stick with your example of the, the stock quote stream. Sure. Mm-hmm. So if my... Ex, so I've got a thread that's basically responsible for Microsoft. Mm-hmm. If the execution on that gets behind and a bunch more Microsoft quotes have come in, right, they will queue automatically. I will get them all. Mm. Yeah, you will get them all, yes. Mm-hmm. Now, so here's the next question. Am I able to set up a filter that re- gives me the latest one only and I can ignore the newer, the older ones? Um, so depends, like, how, how you want to think about that. So mm-hmm. um, if you do a streaming computation, well... Either you get everything or you say, I want to get only the last value, which means the value right before the stock exchange closes that day. So right. that, that's the way to do that. We also have push-to-pull adapters. What push-to-pull adapters do is they take an observable stream and make it into an enumerable stream. And so what you can do then is you can say, on that enumerable stream, you can say something like, only give me the latest value. And that means whenever you do a move next on that enumerable stream, you get the latest value at that point in time. Even if you have to skip a few older ones, it'll go all the way to the newest one. Yeah, they'll, they'll discard the older ones and just give you the last one it has seen. That's so you can compelling. do some polling thing on top of an observable stream by doing those push-to-pull adapters. Can you throttle right. yeah. them if they're coming in too fast? Yeah, you can throttle them as well. We have things like sample, we have throttle, uh, you, have, you have a lot of those operators. So so you have a stream that produces a million messages a second, and you just want to handle a message every 250 milliseconds. Mm-hmm. You can say access.sample of 250 milliseconds, and that nice. will be a stream that fires four times with the last value it has seen at that point in time. Oh, that's ridiculous good. Yeah. <laughs> and if you, if you want to throttle it, you can do it too. Uh, for example, typical typical um, demo we give for that is like autocomplete in a UI. Like, the user is typing really fast. He's typing, you know, his password or whatever, or like something in Visual Studio, and you have to have, you know, IntelliSense coming up. Um, but you don't want to sort of go to the IntelliSense engine every time the user hits a key. Unless you're Google. You... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but even then, like, you know, if I'm typing the word reactive really fast, um, you don't really want to go to the to the service for the R and the RE right. and the REA if the user is still typing very fast. So what you can do in Rx is, I have an observable of strings in this case. I want to throttle it 
at 250 milliseconds, which means if the user hasn't typed anything the last 250 milliseconds, the value propagates. Mm. But if in the 250 millisecond window, the user types again, like we forget about that previous value and we just start a new timer for 250 right, milliseconds. Right. And if the user goes and takes a cup of coffee, the request will be, you know, send off, like assuming takes more than 250 milliseconds to, to drink some coffee. And I believe that's the case. <laughs> yeah, my, my comment there was just um, Google's just gone a little nuts with that sort of real-time stuff. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it just gives me a headache. It's mm -hmm. like, shut up. I'm not done typing yet. Yep. It's like so when you ask somebody a question, you know, and you ask them, so what time? And they say, 1030. <laughs> yep. Well, you might actually um, want to do that as an exercise. It's like, you know, take the homepage of your favorite search engine and just intercept the text change event and do a Rx-based throttle on it. Yeah. To sort of, you know, make you less nauseated if you're using now it. Now you can do that. Now you can do that, and it's just literally one line of code. And nice. So, Carl. Yeah, Richard. You ever embed Excel into an application? Ugh. You know, that's right up there with sticking ice picks in my ears. Nice. Because your end users have to have the right version of Office and all that stuff. Yeah. And it has that extra layer of dependency. What I want is just a way to take all that Excel goodness and plop it right into my .NET application. Well, you reminded me of Farpoint Spread from the old days. Yeah, 20 years ago I used Farpoint Spread, but now, of course, it's Grape City Power Tools Spread. And now, you know, they have this version that's both for ASP.NET and for Windows Forms in one package. Nice. Yeah, it's two different controls, obviously, but it's in one package, so... You bought one, you bought the other. Right. Spread.net from Grape City Power Tools. Smarter components for smarter developers. Hey, Bart, uh, I tweeted that we we're talking to you, and John Galloway came back and said, John. I should ask you about virtual time in reactive extensions. Oh, no. Yep, that's going to hurt. That's a very nice topic, actually. Um, so one of the beautiful things about Rx is the ability to do testing really well. Um, mm -hmm. What I mean with that is, First of all, if, if you have an observable sequence, it's an object. So I will talk about a couple of things in, in the testing domain, ultimately coming to the virtual time aspect. But so say that, that you have a team of a couple of people building some GPS visualization mechanism, right? And, you know, one guy is really good at building the UI and somebody else is really good at interoperating with the sensor data and doing all sorts of, like, mathematics on it to get, like, that long coordinates that make sense and filter out noise and whatever. Now, for those two people to work together with classic events, that's really hard. Like, what's the contract between the two parties? Like, you say, I have the visualization thing, and all I need is a stream of events coming in. Well, you can't pass in the data received events from the sensor and pass it into the constructor of, you know, the UI visualization library. Because a .NET event you can't pick up and pass around as an object. It's not first class, right? So that's really a problem. With observable sequences you can do it. So you can say I have my data visualization thing that takes in, in the constructor an I observable of long lab core. And the way that now the two things are glued together is the sensor exposes that observable and I pass it into the constructor, which also means you can test it really well. You can say, I have the UI library, but I don't want to walk around in the city to see that the UI is working when the coordinates are changing. Right. I don't want to walk around every time I want to test the app. 
Instead, what you can do is you can cook up your own fake sequence and pass it to the UI visualization library. Just like in, in the Windows Phone SDK, for example, you now have a way to simulate people walking and the GPS sort of changing, hmm. sort of mocking the thing, you know, underneath, right? In RX, you're passing it in. You're saying, have a visualization library. All it needs is an eye observable of long lap. I don't care where it comes from. And now what you can do is you can actually do virtual time scheduling where you say, I want, I just want to mimic a sequence that at time 250, moves to Bellevue, Seattle, or whatever. And at time 500, you know, the user is walking down the street to the Microsoft office. And at time 750, you know, he's arrived at that location. And at time 800, he's in the building going up the stairs. And somehow that changes the long lat coordinates as well. Hmm. So you just make this virtual timeline where you say, at this point that happens, at that point that happens, at that point that happens. And you build this, you know, sort of timeline of things happening. That's a very cool feature, especially for anybody doing any kind of mobile development exactly. with GPS in particular. Yeah. Also to test like large scale systems, like you can really just make up all the behavior that you want to test for. And that's the way we test RX internally is by using virtual time. It's like real time virtual... mock objects. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, that sort of exhibit all the behavior in a time based fashion. And, and the nice thing about that is, if you look at the layer diagram of Rx, which we talked about sort of in between the lines before, schedulers are the place where the work is happening. Rx is built on top of schedulers. And on top of that, we have a query engine. It's a little bit like a database engine, right? It has a query language on top of a storage engine. And like, if you don't have a storage engine, you don't have any query capability. Mm -hmm. But you could mock that out with something else, right? But at the end of the day, every query has to translate into the engine into schedulers in the case of Rx, which means nothing can happen in Rx unless it happens through a scheduler. So if you mock all the schedulers out, you have the absolute truth and global order of all the events that can happen in the system. Mm -hmm. you, you sort of know everything. And based on that, you can do lots of testing. Like one of the things we have in Rx is called observable.never. Now what does observable never do? It gives you a sequence that when you subscribe to it, it never tells you anything. It's like the infinite sequence of silence. Like, <laughs> it doesn't burn a thread or anything for that. It just doesn't do anything. Like it, it, It's just sitting there. But what's that good for? It's something that represents an infinite duration, for example. We have lots of time-based operations. So observable never is very handy in those cases to say, like, you know, this takes infinitely long. Mm. But the point being, observable.never how would you test that right. if you don't have schedulers? Well, people would say, well, let's just subscribe to that thing and wait for 30 seconds. If nothing happens, you know, likely it's not going to do anything at all, right? Right. right. So that's the trad traditional timeout-based testing. In Rx, we can say, well, because everything translates into work on a scheduler, right. if the scheduler queue after subscribe is empty, nothing can ever happen in the future because there's nothing in the queue. So we can test for sure that things that take a long time, in this case, infinite amount of time, like, you know, numerous light years, really don't do anything. Yeah. Um, and like scheduling something at Christmas next year, we can test that it will happen at Christmas next year as well mm. by virtualizing time, which just imposes a total order on all the events in the system and just orders them. Yeah, very cool.
Bart, I got uh, one more question before we go here, unless Richard has anything else. But you know, some of the some of the complaints we heard in uh, for for one o were about around performance. Mm-hmm. You know, um, this is great stuff, but when you need, you know, that sort of real time or as close to real time event handling, uh, delegates way outperform, uh, RX1 in many cases. What, what are you guys doing in 2.0 for, uh, performance improvements? Yeah. So for, for performance, we did a lot of work. In fact, when, when we actually talked to customers and it turned out that, you know, the number of cases where performance was really an issue was, surprisingly low in some sense like um we had a couple of you know extreme cases but other than that you know people were pretty happy uh with what we had at that point because events couldn't come into their system that fast to begin with like if you're behind a network or something you know you don't get that you know millions of messages a second that have a payload of several bytes or something like um it's simply not achievable in a lot of scenarios but at the same time, we wanted to do something to make, you know, the total cost of, of hosting Rx somewhere in a service really low. Mm. And so for Rxv2, we did a lot of performance work, which, um, you know, involves like revisiting some of the decisions we made around the scheduling aspect. Uh, so we now have things like long running schedulers and, you know, we mm-hmm. have a massive blog post with, with lots of details on that. Um, other things we did is, is, making sure that operators don't have a linear allocation uh, behavior in terms of the number of messages. Uh, so to give the GC some more, like, you know, um, space to breed. Um, so so that that's the main highlights of the performance. But mm. as a result, um, if you actually look at the performance now, and um, you have the closest equivalent to multicast delegates in Rx, which is called a subject, which is, Yet another concept that, that we have in Rx. We don't have that many concepts, but, uh, subject. Subject, subject yeah. Subject mm-hmm. is basically, uh, something you can listen to, so it's an observable, but it's also something you can pump events into. So it's like an event, right? An event you can race and you can subscribe to. Yeah. Like, so it has both sides to it. Um, and that's typically used on the edges of your reactive network, like where you do a binding to the network socket or something, you typically put you know, a subject. And when a message arrives, it pumps it into the subject and then your query is written on the subject, like, you know, it's filtering and whatever. So it's using the observable side mm. of the subject. It's, it's a two-sided animal in some way. Um, but so subjects are very close to multicast delegates because you can have multiple subscribers, multiple observers that are listening to it and one guy feeding things into it, one guy raising the event and then everyone has to see it. And um, it turns out that that's now on par, in some cases, even faster than multicast delegates. Um, so, so that's you wow. know, like there are no limitations on on that level. And so, for edge operators, like you know, the ones that generate messages, uh, we've seen cases where we pump like seventy million messages a second um, wow. without you know any any sweat. Um, so that's far beyond you know the number of messages that that can be received in in a lot of, of um, typical cases. Did you find that uh, people who are having performance problems were trying to handle too many events? Because I imagine, you know, when mm-hmm. you can't see what's really going on, you don't know that, oh, yeah. geez, why is my, you know, processor so hot? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but so yeah, the, the thing is now, like, there are virtually no bottlenecks in there. We also reduced the number of locks internally in RX for a lot of operations. Oh, cool. So um, so it, it's really... 
very performant and it's an ongoing effort like you know we might even shave off some you know milliseconds here and there as well hmm. um but so pumping millions of messages a second shouldn't be a problem of course it depends on on your user code if you have like a where filter and the filter by itself takes like 100 milliseconds to to make up its mind whether or not the value has to pass the filter yes or no um, well, at that point, your throughput is limited to 10 messages a second, of course, if yeah. you take milliseconds per message. Um, but so the bottlenecks on the edges shouldn't exist anymore. And in the past, in fact, they weren't that bad either. Like, hmm. you know, um, when, when we did some smart grid um, customer um, scenarios, like, hmm. you know, I talked to some customers here and there, and they were literally taking, you know, sensor data from the field and sort of aggregating it into their service and then sending it to even bigger aggregators and all of those things. Like, mm-hmm. the volumes that, that we were talking about there is like thousands of messages a second, which is still way below the threshold of, of what we can handle today. Mm-hmm. So um, so we would really scale very well for the um, the Internet of Things, where you have lots and lots of sensors in the field that all connect up to to a cloud service and then aggregates all of that data together. So um, I think we're very well positioned to handle those scenarios as well. Well, Bart, it sounds great. Uh, is there anything else that you want to cover before we sign off? I think, uh, I think we've covered um, the main features of RxD2 and, and the general philosophy. So um, I hope that people got a feeling of, of what it can do for them and, you know, can start playing with it. And, you know, I hope to see lots of cool scenarios that we didn't even envision when, when we started it the work on our eggs. It's very exciting. I know our friend Reverend Hollis will be happy that uh, people aren't writing so much code. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it should reduce the number of lines of code tremendously. Significantly. Like, you know, yeah. If you don't want to be a plumber of like, you know, gluing things together and you want to have more metal as opposed to like, you know, things to glue stuff together like, you right. know, RX is the way to go for events. Absolutely. And rock on with JavaScript now. Thanks, Bart. Mm-hmm. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure as well. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Hey, thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 minutes of free video training by guests on .NET Rocks and other experts in the field. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the 